You're listening to Strictly Business Podcast with Lindsay Williams. It's the 1st of March, so that's the first day of the third month of the first quarter of 2021. The first two months of 2021 have packed in enough for the whole year when it comes to action and news. With me now to unpack the first two months and look forward to the next 10 months is Chris Gilmore, Independent Investment Analyst. He's talking to us from Scotland. It has been quite an extraordinary couple of months, hasn't it, Chris? Good evening, Lindsay. Yes, it has indeed. Um... You know, I think as we approached the end of last year, there was a lot of unbridled optimism and enthusiasm. The vaccines had just been announced by Pfizer and AstraZeneca and Moderna, and everyone was in a high. And they thought, well, that's it, you know, pandemic over. And then, of course, um, we had the variants. I, I'm not really allowed to call them the South African variants. <laughs> it's almost as bad as calling it the Chinese virus. And yes. the Brazilian variants and stuff like that. And then countries like the UK got a massive, massive um, fright and started putting up the shutters, putting in places like things like quarantine hotels and stuff like that, and actually getting a knee-jerk reaction and, and going backwards, going into massive lockdown. So now you've got the UK with uh, the strictest lockdown uh, pretty much in the world. And it's now past the grisly number of, I don't know, 120,000 deaths due to COVID, something like that. It's horrible. And um, so, yeah, you know, and, and yet markets have um, have had a wild roller coaster uh, type of, um, of of time. You know, we've uh, we've had the equity markets uh, brushing aside all of this until very, very recently. And now they've got they've got a bit of a fright because they're seeing inflation and interest rates in the U.S. Uh, starting to rise. And, and that's giving them cause for concern. This has been a theme that I've been speaking to one particular commentator about for the last three months or so, and that was the rise of the US 10-year bond yield. It was 0.88% when we first sort of identified that something was going on. And what disturbs me, or rather intrigues me, is that although that if you take the mean average from the 1950s of the US 10-year bond yield, it's something like over 50, 60 years I think 5.3%, something like that. We're only at one, let's call it one and a half percent at the moment. The fact is, it's gone from 0.77% in April of last year to its current level of, let's say, let's call it 1.5%. So it's doubled. It's nothing to worry about. But on the other hand, it reminded me of what happened to the US dollar in the late 1980s when Paul Volcker was the chairman of the US Federal Reserve. And he would see the US dollar falling. But I was in the financial markets at the time, and he would come out with a statement, and that would stop the fall of the dollar for a while. But then you knew that people were saying, well, he's just trying to stop the, the momentum. He's not trying to stop the trend because he can't stop the trend. And that is what I'm seeing with the U.S. 10-year bond yield at the moment. The U.S. talking heads at the U.S. Federal Reserve's various branches are starting to say, well, no, it's gone too far, too fast. But they, they're not saying that it's not going to go up. So that's a very long-winded way of saying, I think rates are going higher. Look, inflation is certainly going higher. And if you take the natural corollary to that, that inflation is going to follow, uh, sorry, the interest rates are going to follow inflation higher. Yes. And yes, absolutely. Um, but there's a, there are a lot of observers around who say that, well, maybe this time we're actually going to see a break between, between, the, um, between inflation and in the connection between inflation and interest rates. There shouldn't be. I mean, the, 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 sh the, the two should follow each other naturally. Um, and I think a lot of central bankers would like to try and break that right now. They would, they would love the situation where you have 
uh, in getting a bit of inflation, you can infl inflate away a lot of the debt problems, but at the same time, keeping uh, interest rates uh, relatively low. Well, you know, it's 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 a balancing act that can't really happen. So it's it's they're, it's, they're going to keep on rising. Yes, they are. Whether it means that they rise in the marketplace or whether they rise with the central banks concomitantly, I don't know. But uh, certainly there's something going on. I'm just looking at the CRB index. You remember in the old days we used to look at the Commodity Research Bureau index, which yep. is now owned by Thomson Reuters, and it's a basket of commodities. I mean, a really, really representative basket as well. It's an excellent, excellent indicator of inflation. It was, as I look at my screen back in late April last year, down at around about 110 as an index. It's recently been as high as 207, uh, just uh, less than a year later. It's now back at 202 and a bit. But the point is that a basket of commodities, whether it be propane, gas or cheese, have gone up enormously. And that has to be inflationary. Will it be passed on to the consumer? I don't know, but I can't see how they can't do it. So inflation is definitely an issue for 2021. And, and, and at a more simple level, if you look at what is happening in terms of world trade, you look at, and I, I've seen it with, um, with retailers here hmm. and manufacturers, well, not so much here, but in South Africa, um, you look at container rates, they have risen tenfold yes. in the past few months. You cannot get a container space for love and money um, because the Chinese have, have largely cornered it and the American consumer has largely cornered it. Um, so that's got to, by itself, by definition, has to be inflationary as well. So wherever you look, there's inflation coming through. I live in Rotterdam, and obviously it's the biggest port in Europe. And I live next to a branch of the River Mars, and I have to cross the river one of the, the branches of this, of, of this river, this giant river that feeds the, the rest of Europe with barges and container barges, etc. And every time... I'd say probably one, one, one in three occasions when I try to cross the bridge in order to go to my local, local supermarket, the bridge is up. In other words, letting a barge through. So the barge traffic is getting far, far more uh, frequent. So that tells me that trade is picking up. So there's definitely some, some interest. And I was talking to David Shapiro, and he said to me, he saw a, a, I think it's Dennis Gartman, is his name Dennis Gartman? Yes, it is. He was talking about uh, commodities, and this is not just a bounce back from low levels when it comes to commodities. This is not a super cycle, maybe, but it's certainly a very, very meaningful rise in commodities because of a rise in global trade, because of real economic activity. Yes, and look, currently it's centred on China. And if you look at the kind of projects that they're building in China, I mean, they're getting on with it. They've got the dual circulation uh, story in China now. They're trying to, and they're, they're, they're successfully getting the Chinese consumer to buy into it. Uh, and, and that is wonderful. Um, but from an infrastructure perspective, in terms of projects that are going to consume vast amounts of copper, iron ore, and the like, I don't think we've even scratched the surface yet. Um, before he left office rather ignominiously, uh, Donald Trump was talking about having a big infrastructure boom in the States. And mm. goodness knows they need it. I mean, I don't know when the last time was that you flew into New York. I mean, it's a pathetic excuse for an airport. Um, the city is creaking. I mean, I wrote a story a few weeks ago about American infrastructure. The American Society of Civil Engineers estimates there's a $4 trillion hole 
in infrastructure development in the states. I mean, that's massive. Yeah, um, and that's one thing that Trump didn't climate. do, by the way. He talked about infrastructure yeah. and making America exactly. great again, but he didn't spend one cent on infrastructure exactly. during his exactly. really. You talk about pathetic. His pathetic four exactly. years in in office. Yeah, exactly. So Biden now has an opportunity to step in and do what Trump didn't do. No, you're quite right. Um, because you know, a simple thing like bridges, something like, I can't forget the exact, I can't remember the exact figures, but something like 10 or 20% of bridges in America are no longer fit for purpose. They're, they're seriously uh, damaged in terms of um, they're way past the sell-by day. Um, so there really needs to be, uh, it's not just a Chinese thing anymore, it's a global thing. Uh, and that's actually, that, this, this is good, this makes a lot of sense. But if you look at America, they haven't had a serious infrastructure, uh, a federal infrastructure program since the, 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 the national freeway system uh, was built in the 1950s and 60s. It's been a long, long time since you've actually had something uh, that uh, would, would equate to this. And there's, there's, there's a massive, um, there are massive opportunities there. So I think we're sitting right on the, on the, uh, the very early stages of a huge commodity uh, infrastructure boom. Well, this is very interesting because as long as money is relatively cheap, then they have to, the governments have to borrow in order to fund, uh, for example, the number that you threw out yep. there, $4 trillion worth of infrastructure spend. And while interest rates are relatively low, then they should do it right now and lock in these rates uh, so that they can pay them back easily. But it, it has to be done. But it's very interesting that you say that we've only just scratched the surface when it comes to copper, aluminium, tin, zinc, and all the other commodities that go into these infrastructure projects. So it's um, it's very interesting. Let's have a look at South Africa now. South African numbers, corporate numbers, have been, I think, rather pleasing in the last quarter or so. When you say South African numbers, what, what are we talking about? Talking uh, corporate about corporate results and trading talking? updates and that sort of thing. I mean, for example, yeah. yeah, I know you were speaking to City Lodge um, earlier on before we started this podcast. You were speaking to City Lodge. City Lodge just starting to bounce back again, and you know, coming back from the brink because at some at some stage this thing was priced for failure. Yeah, no, that's right. I mean, they they had a lot of. I mean, they they got um, the d- double whammy. They hit the perfect storm. They had to refinance their BEE deal, and, and look, they've done it to their credit. They, they've they've done all of this. So. I think uh, the, the the worst has now passed, and you know it all depends. I mean, they they have to get a lot of things coming right now. You have to get a situation where you don't go back to to lockdowns, where you don't get beach closures, where you don't get alcohol bans, where you get a kind of maintenance of a, a reasonable sense of optimism uh, amongst the consumer. Um, but you know, if you look at the South African economy, things are starting to move. We've, we've mentioned commodities. The mining sector is actually booming. Yes. And I don't use that word uh, loosely. It is actually booming. Um, there are parts of, of the economy. Um, that, I mean, the automotive sector, look, it looks very sluggish right now because no one's buying. But, you know, I think there's a lot of pent-up demands there. Uh, you can't buy a car because... There's a there's a major problem from the uh, original equipment manufacturers. They can't uh, put they can't put chips in the cars because there's a shortage of tin for semiconductors around the world, um, and 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 so it feeds into itself. But I think there is a there is a demand in, in South Africa that has not yet been um, been satisfied. Um, so I think yes, obviously it's not going to be shoot the lights out stuff, 
But I think it's it's too easy in South Africa to get uh, carried away you know, with an overwhelming sense of negativity on the, the industrial front. So I think things uh, will come right, but it, it will be a slow process. It will be a slow process, but I mean, as evidenced by the PMI today, the PMI is, that's another acronym, it stands for the Purchasing Managers Index. It's a survey, yes. of uh, which is a good indicator of the, the health of the manufacturing economy of South Africa. Uh, it rose um, to 53 points in February from 50.9 points in January. It was announced a couple of hours ago as we pre-record this podcast. Now, anything above 50 means an expansion of the manufacturing economy. Anything below 50, the opposite, a contraction. But it's gone up from 50.9 to 53, which is pretty good. Then you look at a company like Bidvest, which has still got some uh, South African interest, of course, reports a 6% half-year profit rise. And then I think to myself, well, okay, these numbers aren't spectacular, but on the other hand, they are a step in the right direction. And I look at the all-share index of the JSC, Despite the fact the commodities have fallen a little bit today, the JSC Top 40 is up 2.4% on this Monday, the first Monday of March, the first trading day of March. These are big, big numbers. Yeah, I think we have to be a little bit careful when we look at the Aussie because it's so dominated by um, nice person process. Yes. Um, but nevertheless, it, uh, you know, that, uh, the market has been, has been going very nicely since the end of last year, beginning of this year. And... I mean, goodness knows they, they needed it because they'd pretty much gone sideways for five years. And um, look, I, I'm still not a bull on SA Inc. stocks. Um, I think a lot of them are going, to, are going to be languishing for quite some time. But at, at the same time, I do take the point there's going to be a lot of consolidation. I think uh, a lot of things are going to happen. Some companies are going to get taken out. Some, a lot of companies are going to delist. And there's going to be a bit of a cleanup generally. Um, but South Africa is a wonderfully innovative country. It's full of wonderfully innovative people and entrepreneurial types. Yes. Um, they're, they're not going to be sitting um, on their hands. I'm being polite there, Lindsay, and doing nothing. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I sat on a furniture manufacturing panel last week um, based in Durban, and we were talking about the master plan for furniture manufacturing in South Africa. Wow, uh, it's quite incredible what's taking place. And it's coming hard in the heels of the, the clothing uh, master plan. You know, because of what's been happening in China, the inability to actually source a lot of stuff from China, both in, in, in hard goods manufacturing and in clothing and footwear and stuff like that. Um, already, even before COVID, a lot of companies were going for, for local manufacture. And yes, of course, given the, the small production runs relative to China, it's, it's a lot more expensive. But you know what? You're going to get continuity of supply. Going to get, you're going to get supply guaranteed. And the quality is starting to look very, very good indeed. Mm. So things are starting to look up uh, in a number of places. You might be surprised just how much South, South Africa does produce at a manufacturing level. Well, as we said, the PMI is up there, but uh, we've got a long way to go. It is coming off a very, very low base, but maybe yeah. uh, we don't get, we don't give it enough credit. I mean, I've never thought I've never thought that I would be speaking to you about you sitting on a furniture manufacturing panel. I find it very obscure, but very um, very interesting at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. why, why on earth were you yeah. on this panel? <laughs> what do you know about furniture? Well, well it was more to do with the, the furniture retail side. Hmm. And I shared the panel with um, a chappie from TFG um, and the at-home side of things, and they were talking about, about that. 
and feeding into the, the, the furniture manufacturing side. Because furniture manufacturing has, has changed quite considerably over the past few years. You know, it's interesting if you look at what's happened, particularly in the past year even, with what's called the, the establishment of the home body economy. With people working from home, they want to have a nice, comfortable, efficient, uh, functional um, place from which to work. Yes. So they're, they're prepared to spend. And you see this in the Lewis uh, Group results, which were surprisingly good. Um, you know, people are, are prepared to actually go and buy and redo their furniture. Yeah. So that, um, you know, when they come on Zoom, people don't think that they're a bunch of skinflints, uh, for example. <laughs> and uh, so th th this is, it's, 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 it's working well. And, you know, with the, the possibility that the vaccine, uh, the vaccination program might be delayed a bit in South Africa relative to the rest of the world and many other parts of the world, then I think that home body economy may have some legs in it. It might, might last a bit longer than a lot of people thought. So I think that furniture side of things will actually do quite well. So as again, I say, as I say, there are pockets in South Africa that will actually do surprisingly well. So one, it's, it's not a case of, you know, kind of uh, gloom and despondency across the board. There are some, some bright spots. Yeah, there's bright spots everywhere. And hopefully this, um, we're either plateauing now after, and, and when I say that, I mean we, we bounced back from horrifically low levels almost a year ago, and we're just getting back to, as this is a horrible new word that people are talking about, uh, they say normalcy, I say normality. But anyway, there's, there's, there's two scenarios in, to my mind. Uh, we, we've gone back to normal levels and we will plateau and then wait for economic activity to take us to the next leg, either higher or lower. Or this is the start of something. And you seem to think that we're at the start of something now with your talk of massive infrastructure projects and commodities booming and that sort of thing. So which one would you go for? The sideways plateau uh, with the view to perhaps a leg up soon? Or are, are we on a, an inexorable ride to, uh, to infinity, to the upside? In the absence of something really ugly coming out of a zoonotic, a zoonotic um, uh, disease. In other words, the, the World Health Organization have said a few weeks ago, this is not the big one. Yeah. They're, they're cautioning that something else, could, something even nastier could actually come out. Oh, that's In the cheerful. absence of that, mm. yeah, yeah. <laughs> In the absence of that, uh, you know, with the vaccine rollouts get, gathering a lot of pace all around the world, and, you know, I think with the developed world realizing they're going to have to spend a lot of money sending vaccines for free to the developing world because you can't have hotspots of, um, of infection in, in developing countries. Provided that takes place, I, I, I think there are many reasons to be very optimistic, not just slightly optimistic, very optimistic that we're uh, really at the start of something very, very big indeed. That's so exciting. In fact, if you look at something really silly, but it may be a good indicator uh, that before COVID, people in China were going to the cinema a lot and particularly to IMAX. And since COVID restrictions have been lifted in China, they are now going in bigger numbers than they were pre-COVID. So people are going out there and spending because optimism and confidence is so important, whether, it, whether you be a CEO or a man or woman in the street. It's all to do with your confidence levels. And you go out there and spend. You can spend as a CEO, you can spend as a consumer. Uh, so I find that, that China story with the cinemas very encouraging indeed. And maybe that's a sort of a metaphor for the rest of the, uh, the world 
world's economy for the next couple of years or so. I don't know if you followed what happened when Boris Johnson uh, unveiled his roadmap last Monday uh, to the British public, but uh, it was quite fascinating. Uh, as things currently stand, leisure travel is literally banned. It's physically banned. You're not allowed to. Yes. Uh, not internally, not internationally, nothing. And yet, the moment he announced it, literally within minutes, the telephones to EasyJet and Ryanair and the travel agencies were absolutely buzzing. Yeah. You had, uh, <laughs> you had increases in bookings 600% up, albeit from a low level, from a virtually zero level. Yes. Um, but I think it, it highlights what's happened. People have got cabin fever. They've had enough of this. And to use a wonderful old um, Afrikaans expression, they're hutful of um, yes. all, all, all this nonsense. And they, they want a change. They've got the money. You know, if you look at what's been happening in the U.S., provided you're in gainful employment, even if you've been furloughed, you're still, you're still getting money in and you haven't been able to spend it. So uh, in terms of actual savings, the savings ratios in countries like Germany have been going through the roof. There's a lot of money around and people are going to spend it. And I think you're going to see a repetition of what you had in the 1920s. People are going to spend like there was no tomorrow. So you get a combination of consumer spending uh, with infrastructure development. Wow, it's a, it's a heady, heady mixture. It is a heady mixture. And um, yeah, hopefully it won't just be a flash in the pan. Um, and I always use this example. I mean, let's say, Chris, you've, um, you've ripped off some clients and you go to prison for a year. <laughs> you haven't been able to do the things that you normally do because you've been in prison. And you get out there, the first thing you do is you go and spend. You go to the pub, you go to a restaurant, yes. you do these sort That's of right. things. Exactly. So it's, it's almost like a prison sentence has been lifted. So I find it. I, yes. I find it. I find that that sort of a phenomenon fa fascinating. The question is: Is it just the flash in the pan? Is it just a once-off? I don't know. What do you think? Look, I think on the the infrastructure side, I think on the commodity side, that will that will keep it bubbling along a lot longer than otherwise would be the case. From the consumer perspective, yes, that has the the potential to be a bit more ephemeral. Um, but uh, the commodity. Uh, stuff, infrastructure stuff, by its very nature, does tend to be more long-lasting. And I, again, I think I've pointed, I've painted a picture in the States particularly, and in many other developed countries. I mean, I look here at the road situation in, in Scotland. It's an absolute disgrace. It is shocking. Mm. Um, it really, I mean, it needs to be done. Something big needs to be done. And, you know, when I inquire about it and find out, you know, what's going on, I'm stunned to be told well, uh, they haven't been cleaning the drains out properly. And I think, oh, where have I heard this before? And, um, you know, the maintenance has been, has been so shoddy all around the world. So you know, there's so much that can be done. We're also, I think, let's also not forget, we're also on the, at the start of a move away from fossil-fueled vehicles to electric vehicles. There's still a very, very expensive proposition but um, Musk may be a bit of a, uh, an eccentric genius. Yes. But, you know, what he's set in motion isn't, isn't going backwards. People are buying, I, I mean, I see it here in the, in the UK. People are buying electric vehicles um, rapidly, and it's, that is gaining momentum, even although they are very, very expensive, because the running costs of these things are, are virtually nothing compared to what the, the petrol equivalent. And yes, I think if you're, if you're a long-term investor, when it comes to your personal consumption habits, your, your durable goods consumption, i.e. buying a car. Uh, and I think if you, if you buy a car that's going to last you 10 years, I think 10 years uh, it gives you enough time to get back 
the premium that you've paid for the actual vehicle itself yeah. because you don't have to pay so yeah. much petrol. But on the other hand, I mean, in Scotland, you, I mean, where you are at the moment, I'm sure you haven't got a, an electric point in, in the, the street or the village that you live. You'd be surprised. No, in, uh, the, in the village of Tain, not far from here, yes, there are quite a few, strangely enough. Very good. Uh, I was got for when I first, well, I remember five years ago in a little place called Killin, I saw one there. I thought, good God, what is that? I had, I had to be told what they were because I'd never seen one before. <laughs> so, yeah, Scotland is now producing, and I'm slightly digressing here, something like 90% of its electricity from renewable sources, combination hydro, wind, and wait for it, solar. Um, yeah, so, I, I can know, understand the wind because it, 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 it's, <laughs> yes. it's, it's pretty windy up there and you're, you're part of that wind, of course. But it's, um, it's, uh, it's very interesting that the, the UK, I think, is way ahead of South Africa, even though it doesn't have the same resources when it comes to solar, for example. Uh, so the UK is way ahead of South Africa when it comes to sustainable, uh, renewable energy. Oh, it's incredible. And you know, have you heard of a thing called the Dogger Bank? It's a big sandbank out in the North Sea. Yes, the Dogger Bank, isn't there? I used to listen to, I mean, I know I sound like a real nerd now and uh, I'm going to lose a thousand um, followers. I used to listen to the weather forecast. The weather forecast. The weather forecast. German bite. German bite. Dogger Bank, exactly. And used to say Dogger Bank. And it was very, very technical, but I found it fascinating because of the way the BBC presenter presented it. (laughs) The reason I mention that is that... um, uh, a British firm, uh, I think with some other Canadian, whatever, they've um, put a whole bunch of wind turbines, the biggest wind turbine farm in the world, yeah. on the Dogger Bank. So it's a big sandbank. It's about 120 miles northeast of um, the Yorkshire coast. Yes. And these, these, some of these pylons are two-thirds the height of the Eiffel Tower. Gosh. And there are something like 200 of these things. So, I mean, it's, it's, and again, coming back to commodities, if you look at what goes into those, you're, you're talking about rare earth, um, rare earth minerals and uh, metals and minerals. Mm. So, um, again, the demand for those is, is huge. They just can't pick up. And where does most of that come from? It comes from China, funnily enough. Yeah, rare, rare earth metals, yeah. They're the ones that dominate the rare earth mining facilities, whether it be as a byproduct of a, another mine or whether it be specifically for rare earth minerals and metals. How was Scotland during the recent cold snap? I mean, I'm in the Netherlands and we had 10 days of solid, of, of a solid freeze. Snow, then ice, then uh, melting and then more ice and it was very treacherous. How was it in a Scottish village over the last, maybe about a month ago? We were fairly lucky, we, and, and the central belt uh, of Scotland had it far worse than, than we did. And then about three weeks ago, it came down with a vengeance. The wind stopped, and it just came down. It was, it was this cold, cold snow. It hit minus 15 at one point, Gosh. and uh, it was amazing, and it was wonderful. Well, we were trapped, and then the tractor came down and uh, cleared a path, and we could get out. And uh, so that was all very um, fascinating. And my wife, you know, who is um, who's from Durban originally, She's very adept at driving in the snow. It's it's quite it's it's quite a sight. Uh, it really is quite amazing. But it's all gone now. I mean, it, it, the, when the thaw came in, it went with a vengeance. So yeah, nothing gone. That's from about ten days ago. Nothing left. Okay. Well, the markets are filled as well, and hopefully there the, the sun will continue to shine on the markets. Uh, the occasional shower here and there. But anyway, um, I've like enjoyed talking to you because I'm suddenly, as a pessimist, have suddenly become a cautious optimist. Chris Gilmore is an independent investment analyst. How do we get a hold of you, Chris? If should we want to? 
A number of ways uh, you can do it on, uh, as you do, Lindsay, through Twitter, Comrade Scocko. That's a bit obscure. Comrade Scocko, okay. Or you can get me on Chris G. Gilmore, all one word, Chris G. Gilmore, G-I-L-M-O-U-R, at gmail.com. Very good indeed. Chris, thanks so much for your insight. The views and opinions expressed in these podcasts are those of Lindsay Williams and various contributors and do not reflect the policy, position or opinion of any other agency, organisation, employer or company associated with strictlybusinesspodcast.com. Assumptions made on the analyses are not reflective of the position of any other entity other than the speaker or the author. And since we are critically thinking human beings, these views are always subject to change, revision and rethinking at any time. Please do not hold us to them in perpetuity.